Glenn, you're the first person I've really got to share so much of this with. <laughs> Sitting there that night, I couldn't pull myself away from just the desire to not exist anymore. And so that ping on my phone was so much more than just my friend reaching out to me. It was sort of the universe saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. We've got more to do still. We've got more to do still. An officer walks over to me and starts to read me my rights. And I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, and I just had to tell them, like, so no, you can't grind at our church. <laughs> like, you have to dance like Book of Mormon length apart and all that stuff. <laughs> he had that look in his face and he sat down and he says, well, it's a tumor. It's a tumor. It's a tumor. It's a tumor. And then there was other things that really grated on my nerves. I never believed in this one true church kind of thing. Um, were you were you about to say one true church shit? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, you're yeah. you're allowed. You're I'm allowed. You're allowed. <laughs> it was strange. It was a strange memory because I wasn't quite in my body. I was. I was hovering. Hovering, 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 hovering. I'm showing all my vulnerability because I think it's important. Uh, not really shared this story before. Hovering, 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 hovering. It's not legal here in Utah. I don't know how I'm going to get it. And he says, well, I promise, honey, I'm sure you can find a bag of weed in Utah somewhere. There were many voices that came before me trying to raise awareness for this cause. So I don't want to diminish their life by egotistically saying I, I single-handedly did that because there's always been somebody carrying the light for this cannabis movement, generations. But for me in Utah, yeah, we, we started quite a phenomenal thing here. Quite a phenomenal thing. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Look for the good in everything. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 698, Christine Stenquist and the untold story of medical cannabis legalization in Utah. Now, this is part one of what is going to be an absolutely fascinating three-part series. And I'm so grateful to Christine for her willingness to share so much of herself in these interviews. Her story is real and raw, and I want to give a trigger warning right here up front. There's talk in this episode about suicide, child abuse, near-death experiences, and of course, medical marijuana. Now, I'm lucky enough to live in Arizona, and I've had a medical marijuana card since 2016. It helped me to get off opiates and muscle relaxers, that my doctor frequently gave me for my chronic back pain. I have a degenerative disc, and I pretty much always feel some degree of pain from it. So I frequently take a puff or two of nice indica right before bed, 
And last night, as I was medicating out in the backyard, I had a few ideas for some things that I wanted to say to introduce Christine in this episode today, so I recorded those thoughts on my phone. Now, I had planned to listen back to it and write it down to create a nice, polished intro, kinda like this one, but then I thought, hang on a second, this series is about legal medical marijuana, why not include the audio from when I was feeling the effects of my own legal medical marijuana? So here it is, and I only made one mistake in what I said. See if you can find it. I'm high off my mind I'm floating in the desert at sunset You know, when I first started listening to Mormon podcasts, the first one was a Mormon Stories interview that John DeLynn did with a married couple in San Francisco who had just left the church. And I remember I was on an airplane flying to Japan for business and I just, in in an instant, fell in love with this medium of storytelling. Like getting to hear the experience of these people that I had things in common with because of our upbringing, but were also so different from me. And I get to vicariously experience through their stories some things in life that I'll never experience any other way. And then I started listening to Mormon stories, the interviews with Elna Baker. Like I'll never, I'll never live the life of Elna Baker, <laughs> but I got a little piece of her life in that interview. Some guy from the dream mine that bought stocks and believed that he had seen the, uh, who was it, Alma, reincarnated Alma the Younger. That was amazing. And I just, I fell in love with this podcasting thing. And it's really my pleasure over the years to get to know people and talk to people and experience the world through their eyes. Things that I wouldn't experience any other way. And... This interview with Christine Stenquist is, I just, I can't believe the things that she's experienced in her life. The challenges that she's faced and conquered and been forever marked by, forever changed by. And what she turned that into and what she's done with it is just an amazing story. That's kind of triggering at points. There are some things in this story that might be hard to to hear, but it's, it's just an amazing thing, and I'm really thrilled to be able to share this story with Christine Stenquist. Look at me, I'm high. Transcending. Remember that you always knew that life should always feel like this. Please remember, please remember this, life is a gift, this body, everybody is a gift. So, so Christine, thank you for coming on Infants on Thrones. I'm, I'm really excited to do what's going to be a, a three-part series that really started. So 
I think, you know, uh, was it a week ago? I think it was, it was last weekend. Mm-hmm. I was in Las Vegas for a work conference and I hate Las Vegas. And so I just stayed, I just like sequestered myself in the room the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking through Facebook and I saw this post, you know, cause we have 34 Facebook friends in common. And, um, and so I, I want to start with this post because it really piqued my curiosity. I, I read it and then I reached out to you and then I found out so much more about you than what was revealed in this post and just, just fascinating. You, you've got some, some really fascinating stories to share with the audience here. And it all started with this post. So if, if you're okay, I'll read this. And, and you posted this up October 23rd, 2020. And you said, in January this year, after struggling with a severe bout of depression and chronic pain, I visited with my pain doctor. No new treatment for my condition, as I had suspected. I left the clinic, walked to my car, and cried. Brain surgery recovery is one thing. My ongoing battle with trigeminal neuralgia, how'd I do? Very well. Okay. (laughs) Trigeminal neuralgia and complex migraines for the last 24 plus years on top of recent professional and personal struggles left me empty, beyond empty. I had nothing to give others, let alone myself. Several days later, in the midst of an attack, I found myself sitting on suicide hotline. Fear-stricken at the darkness enveloping my thoughts, it turned to even more distressing experience to receive the prompt sent to my phone that there were 17 people ahead of me, for hell's sake. Then the universe sent me a message, well, a meme from my irreverent and satirical pal. I laughed and sent him my not-so-funny screenshot. He called immediately and sat on the phone with me for several hours until I purged my current cloud of despair and self-loathing. Enough. I came up with a plan to get help. My amazing doctor had suggested ketamine as as a potential treatment for my hemiplegic migraine attacks, depression, and pain. I was ready for anything. My body and soul ached with such anguish. I found a clinic in my city. Sunrise came, just a couple more hours before I can set my plan in motion. Luck again, the clinic had a cancellation. I tried to keep my expectations low. I've had years of pharmacological failures, but this was desperation. My ideation was reaching a concerning level. I entered the clinic broken, found hope and my new path on my exit. Eagerly, I reported my results to my doctor. I continued the six treatments. I'm profoundly grateful for the experience. Since then, I found other psychedelics that have enriched my spiritual journey and healing. As I did with cannabis, I want to help raise awareness to the benefits of other therapies. My encouragement to my friends, followers, and yes, even you haters, continue to educate yourself, seek answers wherever it may lead, and always use proper harm reduction protocols Hold on to hope and be proactive, friends. And, and, and then you linked to an, an article that was a really good, good read. And I, I read this, Christine, and just was floored by the vulnerability, just like the honesty and, and vulnerability in there and just this message of hope. And, and so let me just pause for a moment and, and let me ask you, as you're listening back to this, because you said you really haven't revisited it since you wrote it. Right. What, what, what do you think as, you're, as you hear me read it back to you? I think about that night. It was, yeah. a, it was a very, very, very dark night. Um, and uh, way before 
Corona ever started for any of this. You know, this yeah. was in January. And seasonal depression is not uncommon for me. And so um, sitting there in that, that night, um, the ideation was coming and I couldn't seem to pull myself away from it. I couldn't pull myself away from just the desire to not exist anymore. Um, and so that, that ping on my phone yeah. was, was so much more than just my friend reaching out to me. It was sort of the universe saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. We've got more to do still. We've got more to do still. There's a reason we put you number 17 on this list. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and um, it, was, it was an amazing journey that led me to that night. Um, and there's been a journey, quite a bit of a journey that's gone on since that night. Yeah. And, um, and I had no idea when I reached out to you that it would, would it, would it be too embarrassing if I say that you pretty much single-handedly are to be given credit for medical cannabis being passed in Utah in 2018? It'd be terribly uncomfortable for you to say single-handedly <laughs> Yeah, because I, um, I very much believe in, in the many helping hands. For sure. You can for sure say I'm the catalyst. Yeah. For sure, I am the catalyst that that did try to whip up this movement because there were many there were many voices that came before me yeah. trying to raise awareness for this cause. So I don't want to diminish their light by by egotistically saying I I single handedly did that because yeah. there has always been somebody carrying the light for this cannabis movement generations and um, but for me in Utah, yeah, we we started quite a phenomenal thing here. And and so we, we had a, a couple of telephone calls last week and you told me much of your story and it is just, it's, it, it's amazing. So um, we're going to start tonight just a little bit of your, your background, your mm -hmm. experience with the Mormon church. You had a near death experience uh, that kind of led to this chronic pain that led to your discovery of cannabis that led to, the what what the the political movement and getting cannabis on the ballot and and all of that and that all led up to this experience in January and then from January in 2020 while COVID's going on you've had this marvelous transformation experience as well and so we're going to talk about that over the next three episodes however long that takes <laughs> wonderful yeah Thank so you. so where do you want to start Christine you you um. If I remember right, you, you grew up in Florida and you were a convert to the Mormon church. Is that right? I, I am. Um, just for background, my mother's family is from Utah. Mm -hmm. She was born and raised in Ogden, Utah, which is about oh, 30 miles north of Salt Lake City, which is the capital of Utah. Um, when she was 13, her family left and moved. Um, her stepfather was stationed in Florida. And so that's where her, you know, my mother and her family grew up, you know, mm -hmm. the next, the next several years. I was born in 1972 and um, kind of towards the tail end of the Vietnam War. My, by lot, my father and my mother met each other when he got home from Vietnam. He had just graduated from the police academy. And uh, my mother at the time was pregnant with me. She had, she's a teen mom. She got pregnant um, by her high school sweetheart. And 
because of that situation, it terrified her of, of what to do for, for me in the future and had tried to break off that relationship. Her friends encouraged her to meet somebody else and they introduced her to my father who raised me. And um, their journey was short-lived. They got divorced when I was about four years old and my mother, you know, took off and I, that's such a sad way to put that. She, she went and finished raising herself to be mm. very truthful. She was a teen mom yeah. and, uh, and had two small babies and didn't get a chance to grow up. And so she kind of went and finished growing up. My father had custody of us and is not LDS. He's, he was Lutheran, but he wasn't even a, I wouldn't say an orthodox religious type of practicing person of faith. He was, you know, God, God loving, um, God fearing rather, yeah. uh, God loving country, man. He just, you know, he was just a patriotic man, you know? Um, and anytime I asked about church or anything like that, we would, we would show up at church. I was pretty convinced it was because he loved the Jewish bakery that was around the corner. Um, but we did, we would go on the important holidays and, and you're talking about the Lutheran church. Correct. Yeah, correct. Correct. So when I was about 10 or 11 years old, my mom, um, what cleaned up her life, uh, started, uh, got married. Actually, she started practicing her faith again. She's LDS and we would go and visit her on the weekends. And one weekend she had the missionaries come over mm. and started these missionary lessons. And, um, because I was older of age, I had to have these missionary lessons and I was just learning about this faith that my mom was practicing. Now, all of this was very new to me. Being around my mother again was very new. And then her, her faith was very new to me. It was, it was just all very strange. And I remember um, coming home one weekend from being with her, just really distraught because I had just, I don't know what lesson it was, but I just learned that if you weren't an LDS member and you died and you weren't sealed to your family, you couldn't be with them for time and all eternity. Mm -hmm. I was, I was learning about that, the celestial kingdom and all this. And, and I was mortified that my dad wasn't going to be with me. Uh -huh. So I go home and I'm crying to him. Like he doesn't understand why I'm so upset. And I hand him this book of Mormon now, mind you, I'm 10 years old now. Yeah. I hand him this Book of Mormon. I'm like, Daddy, please read this. Because if you <laughs> don't read this, I can't be with you. God's not going to let you be with me forever. Wow. <laughs> and my dad, he's just, he's like, I'll read it, Chrissy. <laughs> I'm like, he still has it to this day. I don't think he ever read it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he reassured me that, that not to worry, that things were going to be okay. Um my, my father let us get baptized into the faith. He didn't have a fear of, of these types of things. You know, my, it meant a lot to my mom. Um, he saw that she had done a lot of improvement in her life. You know, he didn't have this, this desire to use religion as a weapon or a tool. He mm -hmm. was, if this makes you happy, then do it. You know, he didn't have any fear. And that gave me a sense of security and venturing into this thing that my mom wanted us to be a part of. Um, I remember it was just foreign to me. It was just everything about it was just odd 
to some degree. Now, my father is very much community minded. He's he's a cop. Um, he was on the local, you know, police baseball league. He mm-hmm. just he was always in the March of Dimes. We were always doing walks and festivals and doing fundraisers. Like it was a very much. He was very community minded, and it seemed like there was always a family in our neighborhood or his buddy's neighborhood that we were helping. So when I started practicing a religion, this faith, there was a lot of community to it. Uh, I didn't realize until I got much older and until I moved to Utah that it was, you know, it was only if you were LDS Mm. or if they were trying to fellowship you to get you baptized. But so some of it, I really enjoyed some of the, the, teachings of the church I enjoyed. I enjoyed that sort of fellowshipping of others. And then there was other things that really grated on my nerves. I never believed in this one true church kind of thing. Um, were, you, were you about to say one true sh- church shit? <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. You're, yeah. you're allowed. You're I'm al- allowed. You're allowed. <laughs> I swear. Yay! I didn't. I just didn't believe in that one true, true church shit because it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but just for your audience to understand, I also don't pull for football teams. I also don't believe in USA is number one. I don't <laughs> have, like, I, I never felt that. It, yeah. it, it felt very weird to me and very um, exclusive and i just didn't view our world and our universe and people like that so it it was it was fine until they would start getting like that and then i was very much turned off by the faith yeah um and i tried to not have those deep discussions with people when it got too much into the doctrine and and the kool-aid drinking i just was like you know i'll pass you know there's only so much of your marketing bullshit that i can handle and that's just not the place I can go. And this is you were a, as you were a teenager, a teenager in Florida. In Florida. Well, I had moved from Florida to Arkansas. Oh. Um, my mother had gotten married and this gentleman was a private pilot. So we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas. And um, at the time, for some of your listeners, they may know, uh, the now elder Bednar mm. was Bishop Bednar for me. Mm. He was my bishop and then my stake president. And um, I really had a very fun dynamic ward growing up in Arkansas. They were very, uh, you have to understand there was just, it's the mission field. So it was just very few of us, you know, a whole ward was an entire city, you know? So you have the Fayetteville ward or the Springdale ward. And, and so, you know, there was few of you. And so you seem to, to really kind of um, pull together yeah. you know, and like a family. So I really enjoyed my teen years um, growing up in sort of that environment. It was very um, sheltered though. I was very, very sheltered. My mom didn't want me to have friends that weren't LDS. She mm. really didn't want me to go to activities or school dances or things like that, that, that weren't with LDS friends or wasn't LDS related. Was she trying to protect you from making the mistakes that she had made? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And I think any mom would, you know, yeah. um, she just pulled the reins a little too tight. And, yeah. and it's, it, I wasn't a rebellious kid. I just wasn't by just nature. You and, were saving um, that up? I was saving it. I had some big plans <laughs> in Utah I had to do in my 40s. So yeah. I was just, I'm just going to save that. Um, 
but it, it was it was an interesting time in the 80s growing up as an LDS member in kind of the Bible Belt in Arkansas, the neighbors yeah. across the street for us. <laughs> they used to have anti-Mormon rallies. Wow. They would put, put signs in their yard and people would come over and it, and I it seemed weird to me to hate another group just because of their religious practice. So religion to me was always just this weird tool that yeah. seemed I mean and I learned this as a teen it seemed to be this weird tool that was used to just um reign over people mm. to tell them how they weren't good enough or how they they should strive to be something better or different and it just it really started to bother me quite yeah. a bit in my teen years and and I say that because we used to fellowship as as teens you know and mutual you invite people to come to the dances or to mutual activities you're very young in the lds faith to be missionary yeah. always you're always proselytizing and um i just wanted my friends to come to dances that i could go to because yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just, couldn't go to theirs i couldn't go to theirs <laughs> and i just had to tell them like so no you can't grind at our church <laughs> Like you have to dance like Book of Mormon length apart and all that stuff. You know what I mean? It was very, but they loved to come because it was a different atmosphere. You know, um, I remember I could have fun with my LDS friends. That was a little different than having fun with my school friends. Mm. Um I, I seem to have some really witty LDS friends. And I don't know if like the clean humor made you be more creative or what. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I enjoyed my teen years quite a bit, um, even though it was sheltered. I, I'm glad that I had some of those, I guess, bumpers up in the yeah. gutter. You know, that I, I, I didn't. I mean, I had a few things going for me. My dad was a narcotics officer in Miami. He literally was Miami Vice. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up with sort of, you know, behind the blue shield. You know, I, I had some protections from substance in the sense that I just didn't have a deep desire for it. It was yeah. in my world. It was just not a um, I had a cousin and an aunt who had substance problems. And my father was always having to pick them up in mm. different scenarios. And I just remember hushed voices of him grumbling about this, but trying not to spill too much to me and my brother about, yeah. you know, the substances and everything else. And, you know, in the eighties and Miami cocaine yeah. and everything else was just, it was at the height of, yeah. of it. You know, it was just so thick in, in our culture then. Um, Can I ask you, so, so as a teenage Mormon, because you mentioned that when you were 10 years old, you were really concerned about your dad's mm -hmm. eternal salvation and being sealed together as a family. And, but, but then you started recognizing that the religion was kind of a control mechanism and things about it that you didn't like. Did you ever feel like you had kind of a personal relationship with Jesus or the Holy Ghost or God? Like what, how did you feel about that part of the, the religious experience? Um, we're being honest here. Yeah. It felt a little contrived. Hmm. I felt 
honestly, as a young child going to fast and testimony meeting, now you have to understand, I didn't have those experiences every Sunday up until I was 10. So I didn't have that programming that this was natural and normal. Yeah. So as a kid to experience these people who go up and bear their testimony, which I don't know what some of these people thought was a testimony, but it (laughs) felt more like, I think that's a journal entry. (laughs) I don't think that's, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Here comes sister Anderson. Right. Be in for a 20 minute cry. (laughs) um, And bless their hearts. You know, I'm sure, you know, their hearts tug, but it, it felt weird to me. It didn't feel spiritual motivated some people were great storytellers and you know probably did have some some guided experiences and they Mm -hmm. labeled it the way their church taught them to label it this is the holy ghost and it guided you to make sure you did something so your car wouldn't crash or something i i don't know the stories just seemed like human beings grasping at anything for answers wow you know after you would hear it as a kid over and over again it's like I know this song and dance already. I mean, I really know this routine now and I would participate in it without a doubt. I was a good Mormon girl. I would get up and I would bear my testimony and I know this church is true. And I didn't know shit. (laughs) (laughs) What, what does a 13 year old know about the world, the universe gospel? Are you kidding me? It's all programming. It was all programming. Um, I used to, we used to drive to church as my mom would be swearing at us kids to stop touching each other. And, (laughs) you know, we get to church, we pile out of the minivan, we go in looking all prim and proper and every hair in place. And it just all felt like a show. It's just, yeah, because you don't see the struggle that was going on behind the scenes. We got to oh, get out. Are you ready? Like, come on. I know. <laughs> yes, it's so awful. And then we get there and we all put on this beautiful little act for each other that yeah. our lives are perfect. Yeah. And it, it just, so young, I, I just saw right through some of this stuff and it just bothered me. But, you know, I, I kind of got past the sort of like, okay, this is the game that's yeah. being played here this is this these are the rules to play this game yeah um once i figured out the rules i found my niche and mm. my niche really was i like the underdogs i like to fight for the underdogs and yeah. oddly in arkansas the mormons were the underdogs mm-hmm. you know there was just this tiny little band <laughs> you know this ward and this these other little branches that made up our little stake it was it was cute. It, for whatever reason, um, being LDS meant I was different in my mm-hmm. school. There was only six of us. So I got to be different without having to abuse substance, without having to, you know, just be this crazy rebel. I got to be different by, oh, no, Christine doesn't drink. That's mm-hmm. just not what she does. But she's fucking funny as hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like sorry for the profanity but it was it was good fun it was good fun yeah um, and i got um it's okay for you to say that word too you know oh yeah i didn't get the list i i was waiting for you to send a list over <laughs> yeah, of right. all the 
the, right. Yeah. Like, like, like <laughs> everything that George Carlin says is gold. Is gold. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, George. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this podcast in its early days was heavily influenced by Louis C.K. Not so much anymore. Oh, uh, Not so yeah. much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, but, but I also grew up with Bill Cosby comedy records, but not so much anymore. So <laughs> things change. Me too. I used to love Bill and now yeah. no, no more pudding. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at, at um, some point you left this uh, Arkansas slash Florida paradise to come out to the, the promised land, Utah. I did. And, and people thought you were crazy when you yeah. did that. Yeah. Um, it was a very tumultuous life that I was leading. Um, as my teen years were kind of winding down to, you know, I, I was 16. And at 16, um, I was having problems at home. My mother, and, and respectfully I say this with tenderness, was starting to suffer some mental health issues. Mm. Um, my stepfather was a private pilot and was gone about three weeks out of the month. And this has gone on for quite a number of years. And so my mom um, developed a nickname in our ward that wasn't very kind, but I'm sure people thought it was funny. They used to call her Widow Woodard. Uh, and because she just sat in church alone, she yeah. did every, I mean, she was a Relief Society president. She was a primary president. She held many church callings. The poor woman worked herself to no end for these callings in church and um this 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 bar of perfectionism that either was self-imposed by her or she felt pressure from from the ward i'm i'm not quite sure um but there was pressure there to perform and uh she started to really deteriorate she became very physical um her tempers was just, it was just completely unpredictable. You just never knew what was going to set her off. And um, things got worse and it got to a point where I, I finally had to move out of the house. Mm. Uh, my physical being was being threatened. I had a younger brother whose physical being was being threatened and he had to move out and he had moved out two, two years before me. Mm. Um, but on this before the departure, uh, it was an Easter Sunday. I wasn't living at home at the time. I was living with one of the ward members. And uh, she invited me over. We were trying to have a discussion to see if we could repair family relations. And I just told her, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't feel like I belong in this home with you and, and Woody and, and your children that you guys have, you know, that created this little family. I don't feel like I belong with my father in Florida and my brother, um, I don't, I don't have a place. It's, it's really hard. And that's when I learned about my biological father mm. and this sort of family secret that the cop that raised me wasn't actually my biological father. Mm. And I, I remember sitting on that couch, just stunned, just stunned, um, that you, you kind of always had a sixth sense about something, hmm. but it was never conveyed to you. Um, he was the father that raised me, um, the cop. He, he was always so respectful, but very distant and very hmm. cold, um, not affectionate. And um, this started to, to explain a lot for me and my upbringing. 
And um, I decided that I was, I was uh, done living with my mom. I went in to live with my grandmother that my senior year in high school. And um, my biological father reached out to me my senior year in high school to find me. And uh, I wound up meeting him and moving with my mother and him, they wound up getting married. It's a very bizarre story, I'm telling you. Um, those two wound up getting married. My mom had left her temple marriage and um, that marriage just kind of had been on the rocks for some time. Being and gone she, three, three weeks out of the month will do that to it, a marriage, will, I think. Yeah. It will definitely cause some problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, she left that marriage and a lot of weird things happened between there and i think they're important to talk about for right. your listeners because i think they will identify with some of these things that happens in the mormon culture that i find very sick and they mm -hmm. need to, to stop yeah um in order for my mother to marry my biological father she insisted that he do the missionary lessons and get baptized had he grown up in utah no. as well no 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 um this is just the Mormon culture. Yeah. This is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we're taught to do. I can't marry you unless you're LDS, which right. sets the marriage up for all kinds of problems. Was, was, he, of problems. In, was he in Florida then? Yes. And, and yeah. so your mom moved back to Florida? He moved back to Florida okay. from Arkansas. Yep. And so he did. He did those lessons. He did all that stuff. And um, I moved there with them. And it it was miserable. It was, it was a chaotic mess of misery and not to get in too much of that, but there was a lot of deceit on a lot of adults at the time. I was 17, almost 18 at the time. And I met a lot of my younger siblings. Um, you know, he had been married twice before I had six children or something like that. It was a, a Brady bunch gone wrong. It was just, it was just gone. Brady bunch from hell. It was awful. It was just, you know, he had a couple of baby mamas with, you know, a few children. He had some girlfriends. He, you know, my mom walks into something she was not prepared for. And um, it, it turned into a chaotic mess. And So he wasn't forgiven of all of that stuff once he got baptized? Oh, well, this all happened after he was baptized. <laughs> Oh, the baby mamas happened after he was baptized? No, no, no. Uh, he's, he, yeah, he did have some baby mamas after that, too. <laughs> oh, gee, okay. <laughs> I feel so bad because I'm sure they'll hear this podcast. But you know what? It, it's life. It's life choices. Look, it, I'm not casting any kind of negativity. I'm just telling you, look, uh, life circumstances. We're presented with choices in life, and we do our best to navigate them. And some circumstances are messy. And yeah. this happens to be a very, very messy situation where adults did not put up boundaries and it, it made for a lot of problems for children and for just, just, it was an entire community that was affected <laughs> by yeah. all this chaos. Wow. Um, I could not handle the environment. I had caught him, my, my biological father stepping out on my mother. They were married. And I confronted my mother. Her reaction to me was violence. Mm. She attacked me. And, and it was because of hurt and pain. She didn't want to hear what I was telling her. I decided it was done. I, I, the best thing for me was to move away 
from these people and this environment. It, it was just, it wasn't something I could deal with, but I really felt like I had nowhere to go. Yeah. I'm not connected to the father that raised me, the cop. I'm certainly not collected to my parents. I can't trust my mother's family. Where do I go? And I, I just, I felt like completely helpless. So at what, 18, what, were, were you in the church at this time? Was, was, this- um, I was, I was an LDS member. Um, when I moved to back, when I moved in with my biological parents, I had stopped going to church. They weren't mm. going to church. Oh, they were not going to church. They, so even, no. even though your mom had him Get go baptized. through all the motions, then they weren't attending. Okay. No, right. no, no, no. She, you know, um, because he was even questioning the validity of the church. You know, he started going through the doctrine and, you know, challenging that it was a sexist church and, you know, all this other, other stuff. So it was very, it was a very weird time. I mean, I even got into an argument with him that I threw the book of Mormon and it hit him in the head. And I said, maybe that will knock some sense into you. I mean, it was just a very chaotic and, and troubling time as, as a teen, you know, I'm, I'm the one that's about to turn 18 and be an adult and I'm watching the adults in my lives act anything, but, you know, it just, it, it was really hard to, to deal with after catching him in a situation that, that I felt didn't honor my mother. And again, understand, you know, I'm, I'm almost 18. What do I know of relationships? Really? I just felt like my mother was being dishonored by him stepping out. And I just wanted out of this environment. Yeah. With no real solution. And then I had nowhere I felt to go. I, I, I cleaned out a medicine cabinet. I cleaned out a medicine cabinet. I, I emptied a medicine cabinet. I was dealing with bulimia and a bunch of other issues because of this trauma that I just kept dealing with, with the grownups in my lives. And, and I just felt like because of my existence was causing so much turmoil um, my mother's family had always had this layer of resentment towards me and I never understood where it came from. But once it was common knowledge that this, this man that they didn't like was my biological father, it felt like it was open reign to just bash him, mm-hmm. which was really hard because I genetically make up half of him. Mm-hmm. And whether they understood it or not as a child, it's hard not to sit and think, well, is half of me awful? If, yeah. Is half of me terrible? Is half of me all these things? And if I'm not that half, am I my mother's half? Because yeah. she's not exactly balanced, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it was very hard. And as I'm emptying out this medicine cabinet, I'm crying. I'm crying to myself because I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. It's a short life. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, it was really hard to be, to exist and not feel wanted by your parents, um, who were so caught up in satisfying their own cardinal flesh that they did not see the children that they brought into this world were suffering so terribly. I had asked my roommate's daughter to not be in the room with me that night. I asked her if she could go sleep with her mom. She was a teenager too. She was only like 13. We shared a room. And um, I put on a little nighty. I wrote goodbye on my arm. 
on both of my arms and on my legs. I turned on a fan and I thought naively that I was just going to fall asleep. I just, that's how you, that's what happens. What, you know, was you, it, you, you said you cleaned out the medicine cabinet? Yeah. You know, pharmaceutical, what, what? everything. There was everything. I have no idea. Vitamins, pharmaceutical drugs, like anything that just had anything that was in there. Yeah. I left the preparation age. But <laughs> that's what saved you. That's what saved Maybe, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I fell, I fell asleep thinking I, you know, Oh, I'm so sad that they're going to find me in here like this, you know, just so naive, just so silly and naive. The next memory I have, I am vomiting all over the bathroom floor and my roommate comes running in and she says, what are you throwing up? You didn't eat. And I just, I yell out pills and they like, they put me in the car. They drive me to the hospital. They tell the emergency room what's going on. I have my stomach pumped. I have a tube put down my nose and I'm in the hospital for two and a half weeks under high observation because it's a suicide attempt. And because I'm 18, I am allowed to say who can or cannot be in my room. And I tell them to keep my parents out. And I spend the next two weeks just sitting in there trying to, to figure out what now, <laughs> what now. Um, I'm released to a, a mental hospital because that's the protocol for Florida. Right. Once you go from, yeah. um, they get you stabilized and, um, I'm showing all my vulnerability because I think it's important. Uh, not really shared this story before. <laughs> While I was in there, I met somebody who was also struggling and um, decided that it was wise to start a relationship with this person, then go back home to my family. And um, from being released from the hospital, I go to this guy's um, life. We just start, we just start a relationship together. And I find myself very quickly pregnant. Mm. And um, this, I've just walked into the same chaos that my parents were creating. It was just a chaotic mess of just, nothing was stable. Nothing was absolutely stable. Um, we, we try to make a go of it. We get married. We moved to Tybee Island. Um, which is in Georgia, to start our own business. We're getting into to, uh, timeshares, which is very Florida. <laughs> and um, as we start this business, I, um, I've come to realize I'm dealing, my, my husband is manic. He's, he's manic bipolar and his mood swings are quite off the charts and very similar to my mother. And I, I very much understand why I was drawn to him and, and everything else. But this is a, a lifestyle I just can't sustain. Yeah. I start discovering he's having affairs and I'm done. I, I have a, at this point, I have a four month old baby. And the last thing I'm going to do is, is have this environment. This is not the example I want her to see a strong yeah. woman in. Right. And um, my extended family, my mother's, extended family, my grandmother and aunt, aunt and uncle moved to Utah. And um, I had re called my uncle because I 
have battled with depression for so long. And I called him in one of my low moments and I said, I'm, I'm struggling here. They uh, paid to fly me out to Utah. I flew out here in 1991, two days before Christmas with a borrowed $50 in my pocket and uh, a few boxes of clothes for me and a baby of four months old and started a new life in Utah of all places. Um, I remember as I was about to venture out here, my high school boyfriend was about to head out on his mission. And I told him that I was leaving to come to Utah to be uh, with my aunt and uncle and how excited I was. And I remember him saying to me, he says, why on earth would you be excited to move where the saints are the worst? <laughs> as he's getting ready to go on a mission? As he's getting ready to go on a mission. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, we grew up out in the mission field, you know, yeah. and that's sort of the rhetoric we always heard, like in Utah, the saints are the worst. And yeah. I, I never knew that reference. I didn't know anything about that. I just remembered anybody who was from Utah that like moved into the ward were like crowned these king and queens of yeah. some kind of royalty or something. And I always <laughs> thought it was odd. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because I lived in Indiana for a long time. We had similar things. And sometimes yeah. they'd come in and they're like, oh, you guys are doing it wrong. We need to change things up here. <laughs> yep. And Oh my gosh, please. If anybody's listening to this, don't do it like they do in Utah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I moved to Utah and um, that was quite a culture shock. It was really quite a culture shock. I, I was very excited. I remember retorting to his comment like, well, maybe I can go there and make a difference. <laughs> and you did. I did. I, you did. I did. I did not. Yeah. Yeah. So there. So there. <laughs> Caught me speechless on that one. Um, I remember thinking how, how arrogant it was to think such a thing, but it was a bit tongue in cheek. I was, um, it's a tough place to live. It's an even tougher place to live with your family. If you decide you don't believe in this yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. And as I started living here, um, it was very quick. I was, you know, I was 19 when I moved here. I was, it, it was very quick for me to realize that something's off. Something is desperately off. It was such a very strange um, gaslighting. That is like the perfect word for it. It is the very strangest type of gaslighting that goes on in Utah. Um, I learned as my children got older that I needed to LARP. I don't know if you know what LARPing is, live action role playing. Mm -hmm. um, I had to kind of fake my Mormon background in order for civility to even take place. Yeah. Not just with me, but for my children, especially. Um, if you're not LDS, your children aren't going to have playmates in Utah. That's just a reality. And if you don't use the code words, you're not going to have friendships. You're not going to have jobs. You're not going to have a lot of things. It was a very strange type of um, experience to, ha to have. I mean, um, the only other thing I can compare it to is, is, is like racism. Mm -hmm. Now I'm from Miami. 
So I have seen it. I understand it. Um, and, and it happens within all cultures. It's not just a black and white thing. I mean, we had Cubans. We had I mean, Miami's an international melting pot. So everybody has dislikes from everybody. Yeah, I, here, I lived in Japan for, for several years. And uh, I, there was a Korean girl in the office that I was managing. And she would be the recipient of prejudice from a lot of the Japanese. So it's not even an American thing. Right. It's all over the world. It is, absolutely. When you move to Utah, there is a type of of religiousism. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, If you don't practice the faith in a certain way, and there is that, because I didn't know what a Jack Mormon was until I moved to Utah. I'd never heard that term before when I grew up in the mission field. Maybe I just wasn't plugged into the right crowds. I don't know. But if you didn't practice the faith the right way yeah you were not deemed a real mormon which was a very strange thing to me because like look dude i know catholics Mm. (laughs) like you're fine you're a catholic you go and you to confession you're still a catholic (laughs) like you do whatever you need to do and this was not um this is not a religion that is um passive by any means at any rate, while I was here, I, I started to pull away from this church. I started to challenge it. And of course, the first people you challenge it with is with your family. Yeah. And that started to, to create a rift um, with those who were active members and those who weren't. And I was definitely among those in the family that was vocal about the doctrine and whether it was doctrine or just manipulation on old Joe's part or not. And um, that just didn't sit well with a lot of people in my family. And so like a lot of LDS members, you start to see this sort of division happening between the non-members and the LDS members. And our family was no no different. We suffered that. And um, those who had the magic powers of the priesthood would like to tell others in the family how to live. I'd just like to point out for the listeners that you just did air quotes around magic powers of the priesthood because they're not going to see that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it probably heard it in your tone of voice, but I just wanted to make sure they know there were air quotes around yeah. magic powers. <laughs> oh, I, I just find it ironic because I heard that all through my, my teen years, how males of our species are granted <laughs> with magic powers and women have magic uteruses. Mm-hmm. And um, I always thought that was a bunch of bullshit too, but I, I have a little- I don't know. That can be pretty magic. <laughs> My uterus? <laughs> okay. The uterus might be kind of a magical organ, yeah. but um, I don't know if it's, it's the same as these magical priesthood powers. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Some of that stuff was, was just strange to me. Yeah. Uh, watching these, these individuals in my family- um, abuse abuse their self-anointed power through their faith which i just i i had such a hard time with it i would walk away from family scenarios where they would their arrogance would just exude out of them and i just i i completely turned off i had had no interest to engage with them at all because there's nothing you can do it's not like you can be around these individuals and say, oh, I'm with my family. 
that's not my family member anymore. That is somebody who is part of a cult and I don't want to entertain his abuse. I just won't. And if I'm not around, he can't sit and tell me how I'm living my life wrong. Yeah. Um, so I just pulled away. I pulled away from my family. Uh, you find your own tribe. You start finding people that you have commonality with. And I tend to gravitate to those who, who kind of have been abused by their family in this faith too. Mm. Um, over time, I, um, I needed to go to school. I, had, I got divorced from my first husband once I moved to Utah. And I had these two small babies and I needed to go to school and figure out a way to support Oh, you had a second, second child with him too? I, I had a second child out of wedlock. Mm. I had it with a boyfriend here. And, um, and that, was a very, that was a very interesting situation too. Uh, very young and got involved with an older gentleman and got pregnant. And again, I have no shame in sharing my life experiences. Um, I did not want to have this child. I was struggling as it was with, with just one. And an aunt and uncle had approached me and asked if I would be willing to place him up for adoption with them. They couldn't have children. I really adored this aunt and uncle. Um, except for the religious part of things. Yeah. <laughs> they were great human beings. They're just, they're just little, you know, hitting that Kool-Aid pretty hard. Um, yeah. And I agreed. I, I said this, I felt like this would be the best option. Um, towards the end of my pregnancy, I started to have some preterm labor, started to have some complications. And I strongly believe it's because emotionally the time was drawing near. Yeah. And I think I was just having a hard time with what happens next. Um, I went into preterm labor. He came about almost a month early. And um, when he was born, he was limp. He was purple. He was not breathing. I was terrified. Mm. My doctor, um, I remember sitting up and saying, what's going on? He told me to lay down. And uh, eventually he got a breathing, but he was in the NICU. He was um, in the intensive care unit, the newborn intensive care unit on oxygen. Um, he was still huge. Uh, I didn't see him. After I had him, I had some health complications. I had to go into surgery. Um, I had a stent put in. And, and uh, before I was released from the hospital, I decided to stop by the NICU and just seeing through the glass, I was terrified if I saw him, I wouldn't be able to break that motherly bond. Right. And um, it proved to be difficult. <laughs> I remember looking at him and, and then leaving. Later that night, my aunt came over and uh, asked if she could take my, my then two-year-old for the night so that I could rest. And it was very sweet and very generous of her. And when she took my daughter, I sat there in my apartment alone and my mind could not stop thinking about that little guy struggling to breathe in the hospital. So I jumped on the, uh, I jumped on the bus because I didn't have a car. And I 
took the bus up to the hospital. It's almost 11 o'clock at night, and I walk into the NICU, and the nurses know the situation. They know that I'm the birth mother, and they know there's an adoptive mom, and I, I asked the nurse if I can hold them, and she said, yes, of course, and she walks me over to his um, incubator, and he's stuck between these two little twin baby girls that were born, and they're just tiny little things. They're like two pounds, and he's this whopping seven-pound kid. But his little lungs, his little chest just keeps caving in because he's struggling so hard to breathe. Mm. And my heart just broke. For a million reasons, my heart broke. I wished that I was stable. I wish I wasn't struggling so hard financially. I wished so many things as I picked him up and cradled him in my arm and I'm holding the oxygen near his nose. And I sit there for seven hours. And I just hold him for seven hours. And I try to say my goodbyes. And I, I set him down. My nurse walks me out. And she was so kind and so sweet. And she says, he's going to be okay. I said, I know. I just wish I was more. I called a friend to come and pick me up because it was Sunday. And here in good old Utah, nothing runs on Sunday. And so the buses weren't running. So my friend comes and picks me up. And I hadn't really talked about the pregnancy and the adoption or anything with anybody. I just tend to keep things to myself as I manage them. Mm -hmm. And I started sharing with her how frustrated I was with the circumstances. Um, how my heart was pulling and I was very worried about this adoption going through and she comforted me. I got home and I was trying to lay down to get some rest and I got a phone call and it was from my aunt. She says, Hey, we're going to come, come bring Andrea over. And I was kind of shocked because it's literally like seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, that's something's odd, something's up. And she gets there and they tell me that they had called up to the hospital to check on the baby. And the nurse kind of snapped at her because she said, you were just here. The baby's fine. And that's when mm. my aunt realized it was me that had been up here all night. And she walked in and, and said, Chrissy, I'd rather have all three of you than just one. You think she'd rather have me and my daughter, and my son, then just choosing my son, if it was gonna hurt me so badly that I'd have to pull away. And I, I chose to keep him. And um, it was a scramble, because I had nothing. I had no crib, not a diaper, not a, nothing. Um, and I knew that this meant that a lot of family members were gonna treat me very poorly and coldly, which 
happened. And um, I lived with that choice. I knew it was the right choice. I brought him home. He was on a heart monitor. He was hooked up to all kinds of machines. But I knew that it was the right choice for me to have him with me. And um, it was it was quite the struggle as we tried to navigate trying to find services for us, trying to find items to to feed. I mean, there was so much I didn't have. I was still such a struggling mom. I was fighting with my ex. Um, I just won my divorce case and I got custody of my child and wasn't getting alimony. I didn't have any skills. I was struggling on state assistance, trying to come off, trying to go to school while I was pregnant. It, there were so many things that were stacked against me that I, I just, I didn't know how I was going to manage. I just knew that this little guy couldn't be away from me. But the story doesn't stop there. Um, because I was going to place him up for adoption, I had gotten the biological father's um, to sign his parental rights away. Because that situation didn't play out the way it, I we had it planned, I felt it was only right to let him know that, that I was keeping the baby and, and so that he had that opportunity to have that relationship. Um, I was still passing kidney stones after that, that birth. And so I was still having problems. I was going to the hospital I had to have these kidney stones lasered. At this point, my son's probably two weeks old. And um, I'd asked the biological father to come over and babysit while I was at the hospital. And he did. Um, my son cried a lot. He, he, was, he had acid reflux. He had to sleep on a slanted board. He had a lot of health issues. Um, when I got home, he was crying. It wasn't something I thought was terribly different than, than normal. A couple of weeks later, I, um, my kidney stones had finally passed. It was close to Halloween. Um, Halloween fell on a uh, Sunday that year, and so we were celebrating it on Saturday. And so my aunt came over, took me and my daughter to the local mall to do trick-or-treating. She's just a little two-year-old, so we're doing the quick little buzz around the mall, hit as many stores, and then we're going to take her to grandma's and go home. I asked um, the biological father again to come over to please stay with the son, my son so I don't take a, he doesn't need to be out in the cold and out in the weather. And during that uh, visit, he says, that's fine. How long are you going to be? And I said, not very long, maybe an hour and a half at the most. You know, we, I call when I get to my grandmother's house after leaving the mall to check in on my son. He says, he's fine, but when are you going to be home? He said, just shortly. It shouldn't be long at all. He says, well, you need to get home quickly. Um, bear in mind, we're not a couple at all. We're just, he's just babysitting his son. I, I get a phone call from him at my grandmother's house and he says, you need to come home now. The baby's rolled off the couch and something's wrong with him. I hang up the phone because I find that odd. At this point, he's only six weeks old. Six week old babies don't roll and certainly not off a couch. And, um, I turned to my aunt and I said, we really need to go back to my house. Something's not right. He says, the baby's rolled off the couch and I'm really worried. We show up and he's got him wrapped up in a blanket 
And I pick him up and I lay him on the bed and I unwrap him. Tears are still in the baby's eyes. He's cut all his hair off. Child has no hair on his head. That was such a strange thing to do for a six-week-old baby. So I unwrap him and I start to extend his limbs and he yelps, starts whimpering. I bundle him back up and I, I tell my aunt we need to go to the emergency room. I leave my daughter behind because I'm trying to deal with one child at a time. And we're driving to the hospital and I uncover my baby's face. He's not in the car seat, he's in my arms. And petechiae is starting to show up on his face. Petechiae is tiny broken blood vessels. And I panic and I'm really getting scared. I walk into the emergency room and I, I swear I feel myself dissociate. Everything feels like tunnel vision. Everything feels so distant. I call out to a nurse and I'm saying these words and it feels like I'm not, like it's not me saying them. I, I say to her, I think my child's been abused. And she tries to take him out of my arms and I won't give him up. And she's like, ma'am, I need to see him. I need to see him. And she uncovers his face and sees the stuff on his face starting to happen. And she's like, ma'am, you need to let go of him. She calls a code. The emergency room is swarmed with all kinds of personnel, law enforcement. It, it was just the craziest thing I'd ever seen. And I'm standing there just terrified looking at my aunt, just not not quite sure what I'm feeling and witnessing is real. They start asking me a lot of questions. I tell them the whole night's event. I tell them we we're out trick-or-treating. I tell them we're, I wasn't even home. And they said, where's, where's your daughter? And I turn to my aunt and my aunt's like, I'm on my way. She drives back to my apartment. And under the instructions from law enforcement not to engage with this gentleman just to bring the child to the hospital because they want to check and make sure she, nothing's wrong with her. They put her through the, the testing and x-rays and everything else. Sitting in these x-ray rooms as my children are being x-rayed and I'm just horrified at what I'm, I'm experiencing at this moment. I, it's so surreal. It's, it's the kind of thing you read in the paper. It doesn't happen to you, you know? The doctor comes in and he starts to tell me what they've discovered. They find that my son has a broken femur on his left side. He has internal bleeding from what they can only suspect is being punched. He has two fractured forearms, multiple fractures, old ones that are healing and new ones. He has frontal bruising of the brain. The petechiae is from shaken baby syndrome. Blood vessels and the face breaking. stunned. I had no words. I just had no words. <laughs>
look at my aunt and uncle, the ones that were going to adopt him. All I can say is I'm so sorry. An officer walks over to me and starts to read me my rights. And I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, wait, what? I didn't do anything. I, I wasn't there. I asked for my doctor to be called in because I was taking my son to my physician nearly every week. There's medical records of me caring for this child and making sure he was safe. Me telling my doctor how concerned I am that he's always crying and I don't know why. And I start to tell these law enforcement, let me put him on the phone. You guys will hear, I will get a confession out of him. Let me get him on the phone. So I get the baby's father on the phone and I proceeded to chide him in a way I had him crying on the phone. I was so disgusted. What kind of man does that to a baby? And I told him, if you had any shred of decency, you would call the police station right now and turn yourself in. These motherfuckers are reading me my rights for something you did. And he did. Wow. Called the police. They came and picked him up. My child was getting fitted with a body cast. It was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Sorry, it's been a while since I've relived that night. And every Halloween, it's so hard. That beautiful boy of mine is now 27. And he is brilliant. He's bright. They told me that he probably couldn't walk, may not be able to talk. They told me he'd have all kinds of problems. And without a doubt, he was delayed. Um, at one point in time, they thought he was on the spectrum, the autism spectrum. It's really hard for them to figure out if it, the delays and the behavioral issues are brain damage or spectrum related because some, some many things are similar. It took a lot of years of therapy, a lot of years in special ed classes, but he's a remarkable young man. Um, and I'm glad that I made the choice I did to keep him, even though life circumstances played out the way they did. Yeah. Um, I had him when I was 21. And it was time for me to make sure that I could provide for these two little ones that I brought into this world. And I started back into school. I got my um, certificate as a phlebotomist, started working at a local hospital um, in Bountiful. And while I was in the, the emergency room delivering some specimens, I had a shot of pain shoot across my face. And I had 
called out to a colleague. I got his name out because I wanted to tell him I needed to lay down. This migraine was just kicking my ass. And I, I passed out. I woke up in the emergency room. And, and this is now, you're, you're 24. This is three years after? After my son's born. Okay. Yeah. And that night. And um, I wake up in the emergency room where, and I have colleagues around me and they're telling me they're going to take me in to have an MRI done. You know, they don't know what's going on yet. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm having a really bad migraine. It's, I'm in a lot of pain right now. And uh, I'd been struggling with migraines for a majority of my life. Um, I started getting them very, very young. Um, the earliest one I, I can remember is at seven. I do have family members who remember me getting migraines. Um, they were always dismissed as like heat stroke or something else. You know, it wasn't anything anybody could say, oh, yeah, she suffers from this. This is why she has that. Anyway, um, while we were in having a CT scan, they discovered a bubble. The, the um, radiologist dismissed it, said it was unremarkable. Um, because I worked at this particular hospital and I knew to question some of the things and practices, I took my CT scan to my physician who was outside of that network. And I said, I see a mast. I know I'm a layman, but what, I mean, with everything that's gone on, he says, let's get an MRI. He asked me to stay close because I was still experiencing some side effects. I had a lot of vertigo going on. A lot of facial pain was happening. And um, I stuck around after the MRI for several hours until the clinic closed. And then he asked me to come back into the clinic after hours because he was booked. I got in there and um, he walked in. Now, I've, I've known this doctor. He's been my family physician for a number of years at this point. He delivered my son. He's, he went through all that chaotic mess yeah. um, with the courts and the everything with me. And he walks in and you just know... I just knew something was off. He had that look in his face and he sat down and he says, well, it's a tumor. And I said, okay, well, what are we going to do? You know, what, what's going to happen? He ordered more tests and more tests revealed that it was an acoustic neuroma, which is a slow growing benign tumor. Um, it's a rare migraine, rare brain tumor, but it sits on the equilibrium nerve, the facial nerve and your hearing nerve. And where it was placed, it was relatively close to my brainstem. And so they were quite concerned that if they didn't remove it, that because I was being symptomatic, they were worried that it was in the middle of a growing cycle and this may be, you know, something that's threatening to my life. And so they felt strongly that, they, that I should have surgery. They gave me a month to get my affairs in order um, because there was a 50% chance survival they, they allotted that time so that I could get, you know, um, a living will in place. It was the sole custody of my children. And so I needed to figure out where my kids were, who was going to raise them if I should pass. Um, I was really quite angry with the tumor discovery because at this point I was just like, holy hell, this just life of mine is 
not quite what I was hoping it would be. <laughs> mm. Just felt like the cards were constantly stacked against me. So God was not a friend of mine. And I even questioned his existence. Because I felt like he had forsaken me up to this point, if that was a reality. And um, as the time drew near, I was awake those last few hours before surgery was supposed to happen because I wasn't going to spend my last hours on this plane of existence sleeping. <laughs> I was watching my kids. And the alarm went off at four for me to get ready for the hospital. And I reluctantly got down on my knees um, because that's how I'd been taught to pray. But this wasn't a prayer. It was a bargain. It I was bargaining. And I just said, if you give me more time with my kids, I'll be whatever tool you need me to be. I just want more and more time with them. I don't remember having an answer to anything. I just remember feeling peaceful. Just whatever will be, will be. That's all I just kind of felt. I walked in, got my babies ready for the babysitter. Got myself in the car and off we drove to the hospital. Um, hospital is very, very eerie at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> it's very quiet. And I, I remember sitting there, um, ironically, my biological father was the one that was with me. Mm. I was terrified of this experience and I had family members who were doubting that I even had a tumor, which was a very weird thing. A very, my existence with my family is just very strange. And during surgery, I, um, or before we went into surgery, I, uh, I remember feeling, um, I remember feeling like something was about to change. And I just didn't know what, but there was just this sense, like life as I knew it was just not going to be the same from here on out. And um, it was a weird sort of reconciling with it. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it just, it was a weird sort of being okay. I went into surgery and um, the surgeon hit a blood vessel after getting 40% of the tumor and they couldn't stop the bleeding. I was supposed to be a three hour surgery and I was, I was under for nine hours. I had stroked because I was hemorrhaging on the brain and slipped into a coma and was there for three, almost four days. When they wheeled me into the recovery room, uh, my first memory 
was strange. It was a strange memory because I wasn't quite in my body. I was, I was hovering. I was looking at myself and looking at my father. And um, my ex-boyfriend and his friend were walking into the room. They had pushed back. The, they were sliding curtains that were in the room. It was like a, it was a recovery room. It wasn't like a real room. It was like right off of the surgery room kind of thing before I had a, a room on the floor. And I heard his voice and saw myself flip him off. And I laughed. <laughs> I remember laughing at that, thinking it was so funny. But my father jumped up and ran out of the room and they got the doctor and they said she just moved. And he's so like, you, you watched yourself flip off your, your ex my ex-boyfriend. Yeah, it was. That, that's, that's your first memory of recovering from a four day coma. Well, I was, I was barely in the coma at that point. Yeah. I was barely in the coma at that point. So this was just a few hours out of surgery. They said that I had, I'd stroked and I had kind of slipped into unconsciousness. Oh, so this, this, this wasn't, oh, oh, so, so this wasn't after your coma that this was before you slipped into the, or this is as I'm in the coma, I had come out of surgery. I had, I had stroked on the table. Okay. I had stroked on the table and they had wheeled me into the high observation room and I was waiting to go into a floor, which was a high observation floor. So because it's like the intensive care unit, I was waiting to get into a floor where a nurse sits right in front of the window and watches you. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't been transferred yet. And so, uh, yeah, I was just under for a few hours. So it was a mm -hmm weird sort of experience and i really didn't understand what i was seeing it was you know of course days later that i was sharing these experiences with family and friends that i was we were all piecing stuff together they went and got the doctor and he came in and shined a flashlight in my eyeballs and i remember seeing that i remember seeing that and, and again this just sort of internal chuckling going on because i and I have no real understanding of what was happening. I just remember being so far inside me or distant. It was just such a very strange feeling. So you, so you were watching like from outside of your body, you were watching a doctor shine a flashlight in your eyes. And I saw it though. And then you were also seeing the light coming into your eyes like at yes. the same time. It, yes. It's so weird. It wow. is very, very weird. And, and all I can think is the brain plays just crazy tricks. I, I just, there was so much of this experience that I shared with you before that um, I don't have all the answers to. All I can do is share the experience. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. Um, I'm just, it was, it was just unusual. Um, a few days later, I did wake from that, that coma-like state. But during that time, so, was, so you actually have memories of, of during the coma? I do. Yeah. I do. It was, it was, Glenn, you're the first person I've really got to share so much of this with. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really quite an unusual experience. And um, I had to do, like I've shared with you, and I'll get into the story. I, I questioned so much of it for, for a while. It really plagued me. But 
while I was under, I, I met people. I met individuals I think I was programmed to meet. I had a girlfriend who had passed away in my teens in a car accident. Me and my friends were supposed to go with her to drop off sister missionaries at the airport in Oklahoma. This is when I lived in Arkansas. But my father wanted me to come down to Florida to visit a week earlier. He had made flight plans, so I was unable to go with him on that, that trip. On that trip, my friends had stayed up all night with our friends in Oklahoma, and the driver fell asleep at the wheel and hit a semi head on. So all three of my friends died in that car accident. And the one I was closest to was Michelle. And during my coma, she is who I saw. She was one of the first people to greet me. And when I say this, um, I've come to understand that this energy, which presented itself as Michelle, I think did so for from my benefit. I don't know how much I believe that I was in a different place or if I was just in a different space in my mind. Right. So much of, of this experience, I still, it's not that I question, I leave myself open because I know that I don't have all the answers and I would not be arrogant enough to assume that I have all the answers currently now. Uh, but back then I seemed to understand that it wasn't Michelle, but it was the energy in which she was being presented. It was her likeness and this, this energy, the way it communicated to me, it, it was like her presence. It's the way she would have talked to me. It's the way she would have helped explain things to me. And there was a lot of time I spent with her in this space. And it was just, um, didn't seem to be any words spoken. It just seemed to be a knowledge and understanding, a presence. And it seemed like so much information was being downloaded to me. Um, another person that was presented to me, which always I questioned because it, I never met her in real life, was my, paternal's, my, my paternal grandmother. So it was my biological father's mother. Mm. I never met her as a child or anything that they were just removed from my life, but she presented in this altered state. And the image that she presented like I described to my biological father because it, it was alarming to me that these this presence was around, that these, this energy was present in my room. And it wasn't just them. There were, there were other energies that just kept presenting themselves. And um, it started to freak me out yeah. really, really bad. I started asking about my pain medication. I, I was concerned that I was hallucinating. And I started questioning um, if they were giving me too much. And this was, this was while you were in the coma? No, no, no. This is, I, I was having these, these things happen while I was in the coma, but I had started to come through four days later. I was awake. Mm -hmm. These things, these energies were still presenting themselves. Uh -huh. There was at one point in time where 
I thought I saw Michelle sitting on my bed in this, you know, intensive care unit. And that's when I was getting freaked out mm. that I was hallucinating and I was getting very concerned because these, this presence was so strong all yeah. the time. Um, I kept going in and out of, I, I coded a few times once I did come out of the, the coma that I was in, my stats would drop really low and I'd get pumped with adrenaline and, you know, they'd shoot back up. So I had these moments where I'd get sucked back in to whatever that state was, you know, that, that um, coma-like state, just not here. <clears throat> and yeah, didn't, didn't you tell me that, that there were times where you felt like if you heard something, it kind of like, like that, that sense of hearing through your ears brought you back into your body? It did. Absolutely. Your ears don't turn off. They just don't. And every once in a while, my father plays the guitar and he used to play the guitar for the entire NICU, you know, the entire um, intensive care unit. You would hear him playing just beautiful melodies and I would hear it and it would sort of snap me back to to reality or to to this plane of existence i remember at one point in this sort of teetering back and forth before i sort of really truly committed to the body sort of being asked not sort of very intentionally being asked if i wanted to stay and i didn't know what that meant but it was stay and you won't have to have this pain anymore and the tug back was my children. Hearing that music playing from my father, knowing that my children needed me so desperately to get back to them, I, I made a solid commitment to, to go back. Yeah. And that's when I kind of stuck in my body. I don't think I coded any time after that. And I just stayed present and the pain was. What do you mean when you say coded? Um, my heart rate dropped and nurses had to come in and give me medication and resuscitate me mm. because I, I was still teetering. Mm. Um, I don't think I was ever, paddles were never drawn out at that point. But I'm definitely given adrenaline shots to, to get my heart rate back up. Yeah. Um, it could have been that they were struggling with my pain meds. You know, they're giving me too much because I was in a lot of pain. And so when I would dip down low, um, mm -hmm. I think that's when I got close to the other side or to, and, and it's weird to term it as the other side because once I left um, the hospital, I was, because I had stroked, I spoke funny. I had a, a slurred speech that was pretty significant. I had a lot of facial drooping on the left side still. Um, they didn't cut the facial nerve, so that was a, a true blessing. But it, I'm deaf in my left ear now. Mm. And I have a lot of residual nerve damage from just the cutting and, and whatnot. And then the trigeminal neuralgia seemed to be exasperated by all of this nerve mucking about um so when i 
was sent home from the hospital. It was, it was an intense recovery. It was, all my senses seemed to be shot. The body just took a major shock. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Because you, you had yes. mentioned that you were getting downloads while yes. you were in this place, that, that there was communication that was coming from whether it was Michelle or whether it was your grandmother or whether it was energy that was kind of portraying themselves as that to you. What, yeah. what did do you remember the, what the messages, what the information in these downloads were? I did then very vividly. I, I seemed to talk about it all the time with anybody that would listen to me. Um, I can't hold on to much of those memories to be very truthful. Um, there was a lot of weird imagery. I just remember like it, it all seems strange. And I, and again, I think my imagination was pulling at things so I could offer some kind of explanation to myself as to what I was seeing. I remember sitting around a sort of glowing table, having conversations with people, but, but not actually talking. Um, these cups of blue liquid, very strange imagery that I saw that were sitting on the tables, but nobody seemed to drink it. It was a very, I, again, I kept thinking like all these little pleasantries that were there were for my benefit to, to put me at ease for some reason. Um, and I just remember not getting, I, I wanting more, like, I, like keep talking keep telling me more and, and trying desperately to understand everything that was being said and just being overwhelmed with information. I used to, um, after surgery and once I got home with this speech pediment, it was funny to hear me talk, but I couldn't stop talking. Everything that was going on with me, I wanted to share with people. And I was in a tremendous amount of pain all the time. So I never slept. So women in my apartment complex would come over and have coffee with me and they would just sit for hours listening to me ramble on about life and just what it might be after this, this existence, you know, what are our connections truly about? I really was questioning the everything that I had believed before, you know, um, I started to get a little nervous about sort of the, the, for lack of a better word, uh, premonitions that, uh, or things that I would know without having real insight to have known those things. Um, one of these examples among many, showing up at the right place at the right time, I'm sure we all have those incidences, but being guided there and not just with me alone, like having my mother with me saying, okay, we're supposed to turn here and we turn at this place and we're supposed to turn here. I'll talk to this person and then that person being exactly who we needed to talk to. And then they took us exactly where we needed to be. Um, another situation was a woman who she came to visit me and I held her hand and I gasped because I said, Oh my God, you're pregnant. How wonderful. I literally saw her child. It was the strangest thing to touch her hand and to see this flash of imagery and, and just be excited it came with a whole slew of issues, but she was in fact pregnant. There, there was some circumstances around it. These things kept happening and it started to freak me out a little bit. Um, I shared it with my doctor 
that I was concerned that um, one, that I was not mentally well, that, I, that, that something was going on and I was worried that something was wrong with my brain, that, that I was having these types of feelings. I'm not that type of person. That's not something that was common for me to have premonitions and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I asked him if he would please uh, recommend a psychiatrist that I could go see because I wanted to make sure that I had my faculties. I just was really worried about that. Um, and I did. I went and saw a psychiatrist. And there's a much older gentleman. He was very nice, very kind. I shared my experience, the things that I saw. And his answer was, some people are very close to be, are very blessed to be so close to the veil. And I remember thinking, what a typical fucking Mormon answer. <laughs> I just, <laughs> sorry. I, I wanted something more profound. I wanted something, I wanted, I didn't want that from him. I went to him like as a psychologist. I wanted you to shrink my brain. I wanted him to tell me that something got messed up in your brain and now it's rewired and you're seeing all these, you know, I wanted something more than that silly you're close to the veil. It felt like such a cop out. You have to understand at this point, I didn't have any faith in the Mormon church. And I certainly wasn't being comforted by its rhetoric. I, yeah. I just, I, I, I thanked him sweetly and I left and decided I was on my own to figure out what, what was going on. And it led me, I started uh, researching something called the God experiment. And it, it was this study um, about this neuroscientist who did, uh, and, and this brain surgeon did open brain surgery and could touch different parts of the brain to induce God hallucinations. Mm. They could actually make the person induce these hallucinations where they think they see God and everything else. So I thought for sure, I read that study, I thought for sure that's what's going on. That's yeah. absolutely what's going on. I've had this brain hemorrhage. Um, my brain's rewired itself. It's going through different pathways and it's sparking new things. That's gotta be what's going on. And over time, as my body started to really struggle with recovery from this brain surgery and more symptoms and ailments started to produce, I hushed that gift, that curse, whatever it was, I was embarrassed about it. I didn't want to talk about it with anybody. I started shutting it up. I just didn't want to practice being in tune to it. I dismissed it. And I let the physical reality of pain and suffering of my body be the thing that grounded me to this plane of existence. That mm. to me was the only thing that was real, was pain. Wow. How, how many of your friends and family members know this story? Or are they going to be hearing it now for the first time and going, Christine, why didn't you ever talk about this? Well, my mother for sure knows this story. Yeah. My, my brother, a couple of my brothers definitely know this story. Um, my ex-husband, who I was starting to date at the beginning of this, um, he definitely knows the story. He also knows I hushed it. And I hushed it shortly after I got a premonition one day about his father passing away. Mm. And I told him, I said, if you want to know, I'll tell you. He's like, no, nope, don't want to know. 
And I, I was right uh, on when he would pass away. And that was really troubling for me years later <clears throat> to have been right that I told him he would, he'd pass away in five years and he did in fact pass away five years later. Mm. But that was <clears throat> shortly after that incident when I watched my soon to be husband tell me he was not interested in hearing any of that. I yeah. decided it was not a gift. That's mm. when I decided that I was ashamed of whatever this was um, and just decided to ignore it. Yeah. You know, Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with me, Christine. And, and so I know we're going to wrap up this. There's much, 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 much more to your story. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm just amazed at how much you've shared and just the level, level of vulnerability, honesty, just the hardships that you've gone through in your life. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just, I don't really even know what to say about it, except, well, Thank you for sharing that. And I love you. Oh, thank <laughs> and, you. You know, like the, the bravery to share, to share this. Um, and, and then what you went on to do, which we'll talk much more about next time. But to set, that, to set the stage for that, after this recovery, you, you, were, you were still having issues. You were still having a lot of pain for like 16 I, years you were in bed. Right. Is that right? After that's correct. So after brain surgery, I was unable to return to the workforce. And so I had to apply for disability, state assistance, and food stamps. And I had to spend the next 16 years bedridden and housebound trying to recover from, from all of this. And, and you, were, you were on like some kind of cocktail of I was, pain I medication? Was, and I was. I was on a fentanyl patch. I was on all kinds of pharmaceutical drugs. And that had been the norm for me for all of that time. Um, and I had hit a pain wall, and, um, which was typical. And my doctor was like, you know, we're going to have to admit you into the hospital and start winging you off these pain meds. Because at that point in time, it had been about six weeks, I wasn't walking. I was starting to waste. I was having a hard time keeping fluids down, let alone food. That wasn't just it just wasn't happening. And um, I had talked to my doctor about. And this was about seven years ago now that you're talking about when you hit that pain wall? Well, we're in 2020. So this was 2011. Okay. 2011 when I hit that pain wall. And I talked to my pain, or my physician and said, you know, I, I want to try medical cannabis to see if I can mitigate my nausea so I can start keeping these pills down and, and see if I, it will help with my, you know, my symptoms a little bit. And he discouraged me from doing anything illegal. Utah is not a legal state for medical cannabis. And he sent me to a pain clinic. And at this pain clinic, they started me on a prescription called Marinol, which is synthesized THC. Mm. And when I started that therapy, um, I got a little bit of relief in the beginning. About two weeks in, though, it became very psychotropic, and I could not function. I just mm. was not functioning very well. It was causing me more problems than good, which I wasn't terribly surprised. Um, I had many failings with pharmaceutical drugs. But before I discontinued this, I went searching online. I Googled um, Marinol, and it led me down some rabbit holes and some pathways um, on medical cannabis, 
I started reading different terminology about cannabinoids and CB1 receptors and all kinds of new lexicon of words that I was learning. And I discovered that whole plant cannabis had more qualities that were medicinal than this synthesized THC. So I, I wanted to try it. I wanted to try Marinol. And so I called my father that raised me, the cop. And I said, Daddy. The, the Miami Vice guy that the was Miami Vice against cop. the drug. <laughs> drug. Yes. Yeah. Um, because as a child, this issue became a, a problem in our family because my, my brother, who was a senior in high school, was caught with marijuana in the house and my dad kicked him out. Mm. So it was a big, ugly issue so many years ago, but here I am in my forties now and I'm telling him, dad, I, I'm not getting relief with this. And I want to try actual medical cannabis. I sent him studies and, and he's like, Chrissy, try it. Just try it. I'm seeing here in the press, like people are always talking about it here. I'm seeing stories in the news. He's like, you should just try it. And I told him, but daddy, look, it's not legal here in Utah. I don't know how I'm going to get it. And he says, well, I promise, honey, I'm sure you can find a bag of weed in Utah somewhere. <laughs> and sure enough, I did find that bag of weed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I remember looking at it and just being kind of shocked that like this was the remedy of some of these cancer patients and these other stories I was reading online and just not the reality was just too far fetched. Um, and so being somebody who was in the medical field and desperately wanted to go into nursing, that's where I was leading up to before the brain tumor happened. I was supposed to be starting school that, that, um, fall I, um, documented. So we got our weed. I started writing in my notebook, took a hit off the bowl, how long it lasted, the effects I had. And I documented for two weeks, this went on. Um, as that went on after two weeks, I decided I'm committing to this. And I had a conversation with my children because they are starting to smell something. I mean, we're not smokers. So, you know, they're starting to smell these, these funny smell on mom. And so I have the talk with them about what it is I'm using and what that means and how we have to start limiting people coming to the house. We can't have people over at the house which was already kind of a norm anyway, because I suffered from migraines and was always sick. My house is always dark, always quiet. There was rarely people over here to begin with, but now even more so because now I'm venturing into something illegal. I'm going to be using cannabis to treat and mitigate my symptoms. And so two weeks in, I'm getting relief. Four weeks in, uh, two, after two weeks, I'm starting to use my cane. I'm getting myself from the bathroom and walking down the halls. I'm using my cane again. Four weeks into this, I'm starting to drive. Six weeks, eight weeks, or excuse me, six months into this, I'm driving again. Eight months into this, I find my way to Capitol Hill. I'm still using my cane. I park in the handicapped spot. I had seen a flyer on Facebook that had talked about uh, coming up to the Capitol to take a tour if anybody was interested. Well, at this point I'd been using medical cannabis. I felt like I need to know how a bill becomes a law. Like I need to figure this out. I need to share my story with somebody because this is amazing. At this point I was starting to wing myself off of my pain meds and my pharmaceutical drugs. 
I had started at six, at six months, I think I had stopped taking my nighttime pain meds and my nighttime sleep aid and was just using cannabis. And I continued to wing myself off. My doctor knowing that I, what I was doing, he knew I was using cannabis illegally, um, but I was also going in every month having him cut my meds down, having him take things away. So whether he approved or not, I think he was along for the experiment. You know, I think he was just grateful that I was being honest with him about what I was doing. And I think he was mildly curious to see the end results. The end results are I showed up to Capitol Hill. I started talking to some of the people who were just standing around asking questions when we were on this tour. And the lady at the head of this tour says, you know, you should come on Tuesday. On Tuesday is when the session starts and I will introduce you to some legislators and I'll show you how this all really works because, you know, it was sort of an empty Capitol building, you know, as this little group of people are running around. So I said, sure. And I begged my mom, please come to the Capitol with me. We both live 30 miles North and I rarely drove. I was always terrified of driving and having a pain attack while I'm driving or somewhere where people don't know me, my pain attacks get pretty bad. Those hemiplegic attacks present like a stroke. So I can lose my speech. Um, my left side goes, you know, weakness. I have tremors. It, it's really kind of scary looking. And so I never ventured too far away from home, but now I'm about to drive 30 miles north, or excuse me, 30 miles south to the capital, no less, to talk to some legislator to see if they'll pass a marijuana law. It was the craziest thing to even think in the state of Utah. Um, but my mom bravely joined me and we went up to the Capitol and we got to meet um, a legislator. I was really thrilled to meet a female legislator because in Utah, they're just so rare. And I met this wonderful woman. Her name was Becky Edwards. And she was so warm, so welcoming, so friendly, encouraged me to get involved in politics, encouraged me to know all these organizations. And I just, I had to come back the next day. And for the next 45 days, I was up at the Capitol every single day, absorbing as much as I could. Um, it was so exhausting though. I, I had not physically spent that much energy um, walking around the Capitol, going from one end of the building to the next. I mean, I still had a handicap sticker. I still used a cane and it was just wore me out mm. just to do that. Um, and let's, let's end here. Sure. And, and we'll, we'll pick up next time and, and talk about how, <laughs> how the, the, it's like the little engine that could. <laughs> After, after like going through hell and getting beat up by all these other things, and, and it's just the most amazing, inspirational story, Christine, of Thank your you. life. Jeez. Thank you. I, um, I've been told to write a book before. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to start it though. <laughs> yeah. Well, we 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 just have. Okay. Yeah. You're like some shit went down. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore Lay down the weapons that you use against the world We don't need another war Put down the weapons that you use against yourself
Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic.